I was born in, in Beverly, Massachusetts. I'm from Beverly and Damaris, which is about an hour from here for those who don't know it well. And I give this introduction because it's kind of germane to what we're going to be into today. And so I was raised Roman Catholic, um, which means to us anyway that we went to church on Christmas and Easter so that God didn't zap us. That's, that's what it meant. Um, I went to St. Mary's in Danvers, St. Mary's in Beverly, St. John's Prep for high school, and St. Anselm College not far from here for undergrad. So plenty of Saint, 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 right? When I got into college, I think it's fair to say I abandoned my faith altogether. So that, that video that we just saw with the gentleman uh, who, who was baptized, who was atheist and now Christian, totally resonated. I was sitting there almost, almost tearing up. I think if you pushed me on it, I would have said that there, there is a God and you just need to be a good person, good person, as long as I can define good, to get into heaven. But when I, when I, got, to, when I got to be 30 years old, just, just before I turned 30, I spent two years not just running from God, but literally trying to disprove his existence. And so this wasn't like, yeah, I just don't have time for this, or I'm just not into it, or eh, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I was spending two years of my life trying to disprove his existence. And I came to the point where I had to come face to face with some, some data that was out there, some information that was out there. And I'm, I have a finance background, and there's a saying in finance that li uh, liars figure, but figures never lie. And so when you look at data, you can, you can either believe what it says or you can ignore it and come up with your own data, right? And so faced with this information, after my two years of research, I was forced to conclude that there was a God. The question was, who or what? Are there many? Do the Hindus have it right? Are the Buddhists correct? Is it spirituality? Did the, did the Jews have it right all along? Or is there something to this Christ? And eventually where you get to, where everybody gets to that is seeking truth, is you stare into the empty tomb and it begs the question, who is Jesus Christ? Because if scripture is true and the historical accounts are true that he walked out of the grave, everything changes. Literally nothing is the same. Yes, he was born. Yes, he lived. Yes, he died on a cross. Fair. But if that tomb was empty Sunday, Monday, and every day after, it changes everything. And so, if you remember the last time I preached, we went through the story of the prodigal son, and we saw that, the, that the, the Jewish elite, the Pharisees, the sort of green beret of the Jews at the time, were looking at Jesus and they were asking the question, who is this man? Who is Jesus Christ? He's healing people, he's walking on water, he's multiplying bread and, and fish, he's raising people from the dead, he's claiming to be God. So they're watching him and asking the same question I had to ask, and maybe the same question you guys have to ask, who is Jesus Christ? And that's, we're going to take a look at that question again today in another account in Luke. But before we do that, would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the Karenies. I, I, I just pray a huge blessing over them with the addition of the fourth, and we're just so thankful that everybody is safe and sound and healthy. Father, we pray that you raise Caleb up uh, to know your name. Pray that he is a child of yours and that you grow him to be a, a mighty warrior for you uh, in this battlefield and in this, in this broken world uh, full of broken people like me. 
So, Father, be with them. Surround them with people that uh, will give them love and support. And, Father, we pray for their marriage. Pray against the enemy, the, the, the tiredness and fatigue that's about to come, uh, the logistical challenges. Father, all those are opportunities either for evil or for good. And, Father, we know that for those who believe in you, you work all things for good. So, Father, we believe that, and we're thankful for Caleb uh, this morning. Father, I'm thankful for the opportunity to, to be here and to preach your word. Father, I ask that you, you purify me in my heart, in my sins. Father, protect them from me. Would anything that I say that does not accord with your word, would you just squash it? Father, may everything that I say be according to your will. In Christ's name, we beg for your presence. Amen. All right. So again, the last time that I preached, we preached on the parable of the prodigal son, and the setup to that whole parable was a statement, which was really a complaint, made by the Pharisees against Jesus. And if you remember, they look at Jesus and they grumble, right? They complain, saying, this man receives and eats with tax collectors and sinners. Who is Christ? Well, he can't be the Messiah, but the Messiah would never eat and fellowship and receive the tax collectors and the sinners. Right, 2,000 years later, we still hate the tax collectors, right? So at this point where we're going to be in Luke chapter 7, it's, it's, it's a few years into Jesus' ministry, and again, he's healed the sick, he's raised, raised people from the dead, he's given sight to the blind, he's declared that he is the Messiah, and everybody's trying to figure out who Jesus is. And so a Pharisee invites Jesus over to his house for dinner. And that's where we're going to pick up the story in Luke chapter 6, Luke chapter 7, sorry, verse 36 through 50. It says, one of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Don't get tripped up about the grammar. We'll talk about that in a second. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering, answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender has two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much." But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. 
Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Both the Pharisee and the woman are keenly interested in Jesus, but for two very different reasons. In fact, the entire tone of the Pharisee's relationship with Jesus can be summed up with what Luke writes one chapter earlier when he says, And the scribes and Pharisees watched him. They were watching Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. They were watching him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they could celebrate the healing. Nope. So that they could accuse him. So I don't read this. This is very typical. This whole scene is very typical in this time and in this place. There would be a worship, a long worship service that would be held in the temple. And afterwards, one of the Pharisees would maybe invite one of the teachers that was at the temple over to the house. It was almost like... I don't know, if Scott was here, he invited me over to his house after to have lunch because I I preached here today. That same setting. Nothing is out of the ordinary. But it was customary. In every house you entered as a guest, the, the host would provide you either with a basin of water and a towel to clean and dry your feet, or a slave would do it for you. And so what the self righteous Pharisee withholds out of lack of hospitality. The sinful woman provides from an abundance of humility. The water basin is replaced with her tears, and the towel is replaced with her hair. Now, reclining at table, we've got to understand, because this is totally pertinent to what's going on here. Reclining at table is the translator's best attempt to actually articulate how they ate in first century Palestine. Food was set on a really low table that's maybe a foot off the ground, and there's a bunch of cushions around the table. And so to recline at table doesn't mean you sit down at a dining room table like we do. It literally meant you reclined on maybe your left arm, grabbed food off the table, and everybody was doing that around the table, and there was conversations happening, okay? However, in this location, there are no paved streets, right? Dirty dusty climate, hot. The animals traveled on the same road as humans. Just going to leave that there. We've all been to the circus, right? (laughs) If you are invited over to a house and you do not wash your feet, when you recline at table and you kneel down, where might you have a brown spot when you get up? That region, right? Cleaning of the feet the anointing of the head with oil, the kissing, the reception. This was all signs of general hospitality. Further, for for an unclean woman, a sinner, to touch a rabbi was to make that rabbi ceremonially unclean. Okay, this is important. Anybody familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan? It's probably one of the most famous Bible stories, right? Two priests, the first two people, walk straight past the Samaritan. Why? Because to touch him would make them ceremonially unclean. But the story isn't about her touching Jesus' feet and making him ceremonial unclean. It's about Jesus touching her heart and making her spiritually pure. And Simon watches all of this, and he says to himself, That's literally what it says in the Greek. He said it to himself. 
no one else. That Jesus can't possibly be the Messiah, right? Who is Jesus? Oh, he can't possibly be the Messiah, or else he would know not only who she is, but that she's a sinner. So this Pharisee, the one with all the status, with all the power, with all the wealth, with all the education, the right social circle, invited to all the big parties, all the who's who, all the resources, the one who followed all the rules, this is the guy that if we were at dinner and somebody said, hey, who do you think is going to heaven here? Every one of us would point to this guy, Simon. Oh, definitely him. He goes straight to heaven. And Simon is sitting there to himself, looking at the woman, this harlot, this woman of the night, saying, what is she doing, touching him? And the word that the Pharisee uses for touching Jesus translates literally to set on fire. So Simon's looking at this unfold in front of him, concluding because of who she is, she's literally trying to seduce Jesus. Even though she's weeping at his feet, that's his conclusion. And his conclusion about Christ is that there's no chance he's the Messiah because there's no Messiah possible that would come to hang out with sinners. But this is the picture of self-righteousness, the judgment, the condemnation. And I've just got to be honest, this is what pompous religion looks like. Simon. And it's the worst kind of sin because the root of it is pride, self-pride. And it literally says, God, I don't need Christ. That cross, the payment for sins, that's got to be for someone else, not for me. I'm, I'm just too good. Look at my, I'm just too, I follow all the rules. I've got all the money. I've got all the status. I've got all the power. And Jesus will hear none of it. So Jesus, or Simon rather, says in his head, Jesus doesn't know who this woman is. Jesus Hearing his thoughts, mind you, is going to show Simon he knows who the woman is by showing Simon he knows who Simon is. So Jesus, right? So Jesus tells a story. And the story is of a lender that makes two loans to two people. One large loan and one loan even larger. Question, how many people are in debt? Let's get Pentecostal. Let it fly. How many? Not five. No, I'm not going to call on people. Just yell it. Let's, how many? How many people are in debt in the story? Two, right? Two. I'm sorry, not how many of you are in debt. How many, wait, some of you didn't raise your hand. I need to talk to you afterwards. You're not, be, you're not being American enough. Um, how many people in the story are in debt? One lender, two debtors, right? Jesus is telling this story, right? It's Simon and the sinful woman. How many sinners are in this story? Two, right? One lender, two debtors, one savior, two sinners, right? And this is when Jesus gets surgical on Simon's heart because he asks him a question, right? Jesus is 
He's just so God, because instead of like giving answers, he asks questions which make you arrive at the answer. And so he reads Simon's heart and he asks him, who will love the lender more? Question, did Jesus ask who will love the lender? No. Who will love the lender more? The implication is both should love the lender, not just one of them. And Simon's answer is so indicative of his heart (laughs) because he says, the one for whom, I suppose, the larger debt was canceled. And then Jesus pulls, I think, one of the most power moves I've seen in Scripture in a setting like this. He turns to the woman while he talks to Simon. So this is like, if this side of the room is screwed up against this side, I'm talking to you guys, but I'm looking at them. And I'm talking to you. And he says to Simon, do you see this woman? But the word he uses does not literally mean to see physically. You see me standing here. What he asks him is, do you understand this woman? Do you see her with your heart? Do you understand? Are you discerning what's going on with her right now? See, Simon thought that Jesus didn't understand, but it's Simon who's the one that's blind because she has not stopped crying. She has not stopped wiping Jesus' feet. She has not stopped kissing them and anointing them. Now, something that is very, very important to this story, the alabaster jar. Right? What is that? This woman's actions of bringing this alabaster jar and breaking it over the feet of Jesus are completely symbolic of her repentance, her recognition of her sins, and her confession and repentance before Jesus. Because this is what the alabaster jar is. The alabaster jar is a jar that is worn around people's necks in a particular profession. And inside of the jar, the jar is made out of like a ceramic, porous material. And inside of this jar is like a Crisco, do you guys even know Crisco? Does that, like cooking stuff? Margarine, butter, that kind of stuff? Inside of the jar is that. And when the body heats up, that substance starts to melt, leaks through the pores in the alabaster jar, and perfumes the body. So it's pretty easy to see what this woman's lifestyle is. And she takes this tool of her trade, which is very expensive, and breaks it at the feet of Jesus, all in recognition of her sins and her need of forgiveness. And Jesus gives her the words of all eternity. You are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So this woman who makes her living being physically naked is clothed spiritually in the righteousness of Christ while Jesus undresses spiritually Simon who stands physically adorned in all of his self-righteousness. And the crowd asks the question, this is the question, right? Who is this who even forgives sins? Everything hinges on this, the answer to this. 
from a technical perspective, from a literal perspective, did the woman sin against Jesus? No. They're not married. There's no adultery. No. It'd be like this. Jory, if you walk up to Greg and punch him in the nose, I walk up to you and say, I forgive you. Be like, wait, you weren't even involved in this. What are you talking about? You forgive me, right? But did this woman sin against God? Yes. So when Jesus forgives her sins, who is he claiming to be? God. But there's something even more than this. Back to the story that Jesus tells. Three people in the story, one lender, two debtors. How many of them cannot pay their debt? What does it say? Both of them. Neither one can pay their debt. And the debt is forgiven. So we know that it's forgiven. But how is it forgiven? If I loan you guys each 10 grand today, and tomorrow I say, hey, don't worry about the 10 grand. You don't have to pay it back. I'm forgiving the debt. Who received 10 grand? All of you guys. Who lost, uh, I don't know, 200 grand, however, much, however many people there are here? Me. Who paid the debt? Me. Unfortunately, debt doesn't just go away. Someone has to pay. Either the debtor pays or the lender takes a loss. Someone has to pay. Sin doesn't just go away. Someone has to pay. How is she forgiven? To understand the forgiveness of God, you've got to understand the difficulty involved in mercy and justice. God is just. He is absolutely holy. He is absolutely blameless. He is absolutely perfect. He is absolutely just. He will always do what's right. He will always exact justice. But he is also loving and merciful. Okay? In every other system that you can think about, mercy is extended at the expense of justice. If I leave out of here today and I blow through a red light on my way home and they've got it on the video cameras and I have to go to court and I stand in front of the judge and I say, I absolutely did it. I am absolutely guilty. There is no question about it. If the judge says to me, don't worry about it. You deserve a ticket, but I'm going to let you off with a warning. The judge has suspended justice to give me mercy. If I get a ticket, the judge was not merciful he or she extended justice. They cannot coexist. It's either justice or mercy, but not both except in one place. At the cross of Christ, God did not extend his mercy at the expense of justice. He extended it through his justice. All the judgment, all the scorn, all the sin, all the wrath, poured out on Christ, and Christ drank it down to the last drop, flipped the cup over, and screamed into history, it is finished. And the word in the Greek that he says is tetelestai. And what it translates to is paid in full. That's what they would stamp on any debt note 
that was paid in full. Bang! To Telestai. Finished. The debt is canceled. Back to Jesus' story. Is this woman a sinner? Yes or no? Does she deserve punishment? Yes or no? You're unsure? I haven't done a good job. Yes, right? Sinner, punishment, guilty. Was she saved from the punishment? Yes. By her own good deeds? By cleaning herself up before she came before Jesus? By volunteering her time? By writing a huge check to the temple? Nope. Her faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ is what saved her. And then Jesus says to her, in the presence of all the scorn and the judgment in that house, go in peace. He declared peace to her because on the cross he made peace for her. Peace between her and God. See, Jesus was not just a peaceful person. Jesus did not come just teaching about peace. Jesus literally is the peace offering from God to us. He is the terms of peace. The biggest difference between the Pharisee and the woman is not their profession. The biggest difference between the Pharisee and the woman is not their power or their social network or their status, or their wealth, or their religious activities, the biggest difference between these two is the consciousness of their sin and their need for a Savior. The Bible is crystal clear that if you are sinless, you go straight to heaven. There's just one problem. No one is sinless. Not Simon, not the woman, not you, and not me. If you're a cynic in the room today, rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, as you heard, I was just like you. And I don't know your reason for your cynicism. Mine was science. I thought science had all the explanation for everything. Maybe you think you can just be a good person and if there is a God, you'll get into heaven. Maybe when we die, we all turn to dust. That's what you believe. But whatever it is, would you do me a favor and come introduce yourself to me after service? Better yet, find somebody from the well and introduce yourself to them. We have no interest in arguing with you. That's not what it's about. We'd love to hear your story. Love to hear why you're cynical. And we want to love you through that. But I have to tell you, the most loving thing I can do for you right now, and it brings me little joy to actually say this, is that the next time this world sees Jesus, he's not coming as a helpless child, but as a conquering king. And he will execute God's justice on all who have rejected him. You do not, that, that does not have to be the case. You do not have to go into the final day and stand before God having rejected his peace offering. 
I bring to you good news of great joy. And it is the person of Jesus Christ. Either you pay for your sins for all of eternity, or you believe in the one who paid it for you. Turn from your sin. I beg you. Call on the name of Jesus Christ. He will save you just like he saved me. If you're a seeker in the room, maybe like the woman in Luke's account, let me back the woman's story up just a little bit because if you put all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you take all of the stories within them and you put them in chronological order, what came right before this dinner was Jesus proclaiming to a multitude of people, come to me, all you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. I will give you rest for your soul. Do you think that woman was in that crowd? You think she heard the words of Jesus? You think she was tired? Tired of her sin, tired of her choices, tired of her lifestyle, tired of the identity in her profession, which is exactly what Simon said. This is who you are, woman. Clearly, this is what you're doing. She came to Jesus. She threw herself at his feet and cleaned the dirtiest part of him. How much more does Jesus clean the dirtiest part of us? Not the dirt on our feet with his tears, but the sin on our soul with his blood. When you give your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior, you are not making a decision to become perfect behaviorally. You're making a decision to be forgiven spiritually. And when your eyes close here and open there, it will be Jesus that welcomes you into God's home and kisses you as a child of God. If you're a Christian, the message is exceedingly simple. The greatest miracle Jesus ever did was not healing the sick or giving sight to the blind or even raising somebody from the dead. The greatest miracle Jesus ever performed was forgiving our sins. We've been forgiven much. We are to love much. Love Christ with all of your heart, all of your strength, all of your soul, all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. By this the world will know Christ that we have love one for another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word has gone forth and I pray that I was faithful to it. Father, the work now is completely up to you and I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you convict of sins, convict, of, convict us of our sins, Father, I pray for repentance in myself and in others. I pray, that, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, I would never slide into the self-righteousness of religion. That I would not pass judgment and scorn and contempt on others. Father, I pray that like the woman, every single day I and other Christians in the room would throw ourselves at your feet not run to our to-do lists or run to the gym or run period, run to knowledge, run to money, run to status, run to family, run to substance. 
But Father, I pray that we would constantly, day after day, we would throw ourselves at your feet. Throw ourselves at the throne of grace. Father, you are mighty to save and your son has paid it all. Father, would you do a mighty work in our hearts? Save us, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.